The following program is being brought to you on the Voice America Health and Wellness Channel. For more information about our network and to check our additional show hosts and topics of interest, please visit voiceamericahealth.com. The Voice America Talk Radio Network is the worldwide leader in live Internet talk radio. Visit voiceamerica.com. The views and ideas expressed on the following program are strictly those of the host or guests and do not necessarily reflect the views and ideas held by the Voice America Talk Radio Network, its staff, and management. Good afternoon and welcome to One Hour at a Time. Recovery begins with education and host Mary Woods is here to educate individuals and families and provide support through the recovery process. Now here's your host, Mary Woods. Welcome everyone to One Hour at a Time. This is John McAndrew, your co-host with One Hour at a Time. And today we're uh, lucky to be talking to Dr. David Ohms, who is a medical director at Centerpoint Hospitals in Missouri. And the doctor's been in the addictions uh, treatment field for many, many years, and I'm going to give you a little history on him, and uh, we have lots of good things to talk about. Uh, Like I said, he is the medical director for Centerpoint Hospitals uh, for Chemical Dependency Services. He's a psychiatrist who has specialized in addiction disease for over 40 years internationally recognized expert in the field and uh, best known for his popularizing the concept that alcoholism is a primary disease. He earned his certification in addiction medicine from the American Society of Addiction Medicine in 1986, was appointed a fellow in 1997. He was named the Distinguished Life Fellow of the American Psychiatric Association in 2006 2007 received the Missourian Award for having pioneered changes in the treatment of addictions in his home state of Missouri. As you will learn, he's a strong advocate of continuing education and training in the field of addiction medicine. Uh, He's written and produced numerous uh, training videos for professionals and presented hundreds of articles and topics such as alcoholism, chemical dependency, prescription on illicit drug abuse. Uh, And Dr. Ohms has been a consultant and provided services to many, many organizations, including the Cardinals and the Tigers and uh, Anheuser-Busch, Citgo, Petroleum Caterpillar. The list really goes on and on and on. And finally, he's he's earned his degrees, medical degrees from the University of Texas, and also completed his residency in psychiatry at the University of Missouri-Columbia, practices both in Missouri and Texas. So after that long, long introduction, Dr. Ohms, I want people to know how much much of your life you've put into this. Welcome to the show, and we thank you for being here. Thank you for inviting me. I'm looking forward to it. You know, the first question... You've been in this field of addiction medicine for so long, and I think my first question is, when you first uh, became a doctor, was there even a term such as addiction medicine or the disease concept? A lot of things have changed since you've gotten into this field, haven't they? They sure have. No, there was no term like addiction medicine, at least not in the United States. Uh, The first examination that existed to show that you had any kind of uh, expertise in the field was actually 1986. Wow. Uh, it was that recent that we finally got around to having a way you could 
prove that you were competent by passing that exam. Mm-hmm. And you, uh, you have written a paper on alcoholism and the, the disease concept. And when did you start to do that work? When did you start to talk about it? And, and uh, what compelled you to, uh, to try to hold this flag up and to get people to look at this? What was the impetus behind all that? The impetus actually was during my training in a, as a, in a psych residency. Uh, I really believed at that time that alcoholism and other drug addictions were just symptoms of some other underlying problem like depression, anxiety, etc. Mm-hmm. And I was treating my patients that way, including one gentleman that in my second year of training we were required to have a number of patients that we saw in what we call long-term psychotherapy, long-term counseling therapy. And one of them, a guy named Tom, was an alcoholic. Uh, and I really got to know Tom well. I had over 200 hours of actual counseling with Tom as he was my patient. And within three months of my leaving him to move on to my next year, uh, he died in a bar fight from a ruptured spleen. And I had been treating Tom um, as if his alcoholism was a symptom of depression. Uh, at that point, I went to a doctor that was part of the training program. We ran a, what was called a detox program for skid row alcoholics. Uh-huh. And I said, uh, you know, you have some success with Skid Row guys. I had nothing but total failure with my people. What's wrong with me? He said, well, Dave, maybe you need to stop thinking of it as a symptom and think of it as a primary problem. So I started looking into that, and it didn't take me very long to realize it is a disease that has its own signs and symptoms and its own cause. And I started preaching that, oh, in 1971, 72, somewhere back there. Uh-huh. Long time ago. And you were aware of, I'm sure, in treating Tom, uh, we've had some people that have uh, been involved with 12-step programs. The disease concept has been around quite a long time in in Alcoholics Anonymous, hasn't it? It certainly has. Uh, That's probably why they're so successful in my mind. Uh, You know, with Tom, I didn't even encourage him to go to, to meetings, to AA meetings at all, which is a desperate, stupid mistake. Mm-hmm. Uh, I'm, not, I, you know, I'm not blaming myself that Tom died, but I am blaming myself that I don't think I gave him very good treatment. Uh, nowadays, I just insist on 12-step programming for my patients uh-huh. and, and discover that if they don't go, they don't do well. I've often wh- said yeah. AA and NA make me look good. Yeah, and why do you think, uh, because I think it's an interesting uh, experience. Why do you think doctors have not? Um, what's the good word? Why hasn't that become apparent to doctors? Why did it take so long? I'm not exactly sure when the disease concept in the AMA was accepted uh, through Alcoholics Anonymous, but it was quite a long you know, 20, John, 30 years. I, I'll shock you when I tell you that the AMA literally published an article in 1956 pointing out that alcoholism was a disease. And it got no attention and nobody paid attention to it. And you know what? Most people still don't. Really? In your profession? In our, yeah, my profession. It's, it is very difficult in my profession to get any training in addiction medicine at all. I mean, you have to really scramble and look for places to go to get training. Mm-hmm. Uh, there were none when I got into the field. I fortunately found a gentleman who was treating alcoholics before AA existed. Not a psychiatrist, an internist. And he was my mentor. I joined him in private practice uh, when I finished my residency. And 
I'll be blunt and say 90% of what I know, Dr. Kendis, that was his name, Joe Kendis, he taught me. Plus, wow. me going to a lot of meetings myself at his encouragement to see what they were like. Mm-hmm. So you, how were you, how well were you received? I'm assuming you wrote this paper, and um, it's in all my paperwork here, and I, I don't know the exact year, but you wrote it, and then you had to support it by going out and talking about it. So how was this received by by your profession. Now, keeping in mind, there's no uh, such thing as, a, as an addiction medicine, uh, you know, credential at the time. So you, right. they, might have, they must have thought you were doing something either innovative or crazy. Uh, I think most of them thought I was crazy. And, <laughs> and I think they still think that today. Uh, it's even, you know what, I think any progress we made in getting the concept, the idea that addiction was a disease process. Uh, any, any progress we made in that in the 70s and 80s has really been severely damaged in the last 20 years by what's referred to as managed care. Um, the insurance industry has uh, pretty well devastated treatment for addicts. Can you go into more details on how and, and why that happens? Well, you know, the managed care in many ways, boils down to what I call managed dollar. Right. Uh, and it's, they think it's too expensive to treat an addict. I actually had a, a medical director of a, a behavioral medicine side of an insurance company tell me and some other doctors uh, that the best thing that could happen to their insurance plan was that if all those people, meaning addicts, died because they were high utilizers of health care. Oh, my goodness. Oh, yeah, that's what I said. I got up, walked out of the room, and asked her if she had taken the same oath I had taken. That attitude is pretty prevalent, though. Uh, if I can give you a quick example, recently, absolutely. But recently, we, you know, we have an epidemic in this country of heroin right now, right? Opiate, opiate dependency. And I had a mom and dad bring their 19-year-old heroin addict to Centerpoint Hospital for admission. Uh, he came because the day before he had been doing heroin with his friend, and his friend died of an overdose in front of his eyes. Mm-hmm. So he wanted help, and he was really motivated. And he was denied admission by his insurance company because, quote, heroin withdrawal is not deadly. It's just uncomfortable. Oh, good Lord. And I argued that heroin addiction is pretty deadly, and that got me nowhere. And I'm going to be honest with you. The kid died about a week later Boy. from an overdose of heroin. That kind of an attitude... One of the things I hear all the time is, well, we're not going to let him come into residential or inpatient treatment until they failed outpatient treatment. Right. Well, unfortunately, with addiction, that failure is frequently fatal. Now, has the new Affordable Care Act, and part of that is the parity bill, and I'm not educated enough. Uh, I know a little, just enough to be dangerous, but I uh, I recently heard Patrick Kennedy do a talk to the APA you know, the American Psychiatric mm-hmm. Association, to tell them that we need to treat this. This is a brain disease, right? It is. Now, when our leg gets broken, we treat it. We do everything we need to take care of that leg, and we set it. And that, you know, he's trying to get it through to these folks' heads, heads that are at, in the front lines of, the, of this disease, that we need to treat this just like the heart, the leg, any part, other part of the body, and we're treating the brain. Now, that concept is probably a few years in the making, but boy, you were up against it back when you were starting and trying to talk to people. Uh, and my question ultimately is, 
Are you encouraged by what we're learning about the brain and the research, and where do you think this is going to lead us? It, we've learned an awful lot about the addiction, the brain and addiction, and, and what are some of the, if you want, genetic predispositions to addiction. It's even leading to some development of medications, which have been extremely helpful for certain kinds of addiction. So I'm very optimistic that as we learn more and more about the brain, we're going to have more and more better treatment for addictions. Uh, I've still got a long way to go, but it's it's an exciting time. It really, really is. Yeah. Uh, and I'm, I'm, you know, getting kind of up there in years. I wish I had a few more so I could see where we end up in the next 20. Well, you could live to be 150, you know. So we've got to be hopeful. And, yeah, well, and I, just, you know, I'll just take that one day at a time. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Because of your experience, you know, of what you know, where we've come from and where we're going, do you think the problem is uh, education to this field, or is it the insurance companies and who pays for what? What do you think it is, or a combination? Oh, I think of both? it's a combination of everything. We need yeah. definitely better education of the public. Uh, all mental illness has a stigma to it, and and I think alcohol and drug addiction have the most stigma associated with it. And only public knowledge, public information through education, I think, is going to really change that to any great degree. As far as training, yes, we need to improve the training that goes on in our medical schools, in our social work schools, in our psychology schools. That all has to be done. And we've got a long way to go in all of that. Are you still involved um, in in the educational process? And I think we'll go to break in just a little while, and I kind of want to talk about what you're, you're doing at Centerpoint and how that relates to, uh, you know, treating people with co-occurring or dual diagnosis, you know, and what you do there at Centerpoint. But are you still involved in going out and speaking? And Yes, I am. About I, your... I don't travel as much as I used to due to my age, but uh, mm-hmm. I do a lot of public speaking yet. And, and uh, even recently, about, what, two years ago, we made another video uh, for public consumption on heroin. Awesome. Oh, yeah, I do still try to do a lot, and we do a lot of education at Centerpoint. Very good. We've been talking to Dr. David Ohms of Centerpoint Hospital in St. Louis, St. Charles, Missouri, in that area, and I'll, I'll get more specific when we come back and give you all some information on how to get on that website. And when we come back, we're going to we'll talk a little bit about Centerpoint and how they treat people that come in there uh, with co-occurring or dual diagnosis disorders. We'll be right back. You're listening to Voice America Health and Wellness. Westbridge Community Services. Westbridge is a nonprofit organization dedicated to supporting the recovery of families and individuals who experience co-occurring mental illness and substance use disorders. Westbridge provides integrated dual diagnosis treatment for adult men and women using evidence-based practices. Visit our site today at westbridge.org and discover that doing what works in helping individuals and families gain recovery from dual disorders is important to the staff at Westbridge Community Services. Westbridge utilizes current evidence-based practices, consensus practices, and old-fashioned common sense to provide treatment to individuals and families that experience co-occurring mental illness and substance use disorders. That's westbridge.org, Family Center Recovery for co-occurring mental illness and substance abuse disorders. Make the most of your beautiful life. 
Listen to Ageless Living with Dr. Tong Lee and co-host Kurt Wilhelm to gain tips on how to live healthier and happier, alleviate suffering, prevent disease, become more beautiful in body, mind, and fashion, and find peace, balance, and success in your life. Are you aware that every 3,500 calories that you eat above what you burn will put a pound of fat on your body? And running one mile only burns 200 calories? So portion size does matter, and migraines do have a cure. What is it? You'll have to tune in Tuesdays at 3 p.m. Pacific, 6 p.m. Eastern on Voice America Health & Wellness. Your life, your health, your network. You're listening to Voice America Health & Wellness. You're listening to One Hour at a Time with host Mary Woods. If you have a question for Mary or her guests, call now. The listener lines are open. The toll-free number is 1-866-472-5792. That number again is 1-866-472-5792. Now, let's get back to Mary and One Hour at a Time. Welcome back, everybody. We've been talking to Dr. Ava, uh, Dr. David Alms of Centerpoint Hospital, which is in St. Charles County, Missouri. Uh, folks, if you're listening, you can go to their website at centerpointhospital.com. Pretty easy to find. And Dr. Alms uh, has been in this field uh, for over 40 years and has seen a lot of things change, a lot of things not change. And and still does a lot of public speaking. He's been all over the world to talk about addiction medicine. And uh, Dr. Olmes, if someone wanted to contact you, how could they do that? And uh, could you give us that information now? Sure. I think the best way would be just to call Centerpoint Hospital and have them reach me. Because I'm kind of all over the place. Uh, okay. And, and a good number for that is 636-477-5792. That would be the intake assessment department. Very good. Hope everybody jotted that down, and maybe you can get on the website while you're listening to the show. We're going to follow up with, um, we talked about addiction medicine not even being a credential or uh, a word uh, before 1986, which isn't really that long ago, and sort of a, the conceptions and misconceptions of treating dual diagnosis and co-occurring, uh, you've done a lot of work to try to get people to, well, doctors to see that alcoholism is a disease. And uh, I'd like to know more about how Centerpoint Hospital got started, how you got involved in all that, and what you do there to, uh, to patients that come in with uh, dual diagnosis or co-occurring disorders. Oh, okay. Uh, basically, it got started because I have to go back a bit. At one point in in the St. Louis metropolitan area, we had about 800 beds, private beds for chemical dependency. And then with all the changes in insurance and managed care, right. that dropped down to 12 beds oh my God. out of 800. So there was a great, great need. And a bunch of doctors and other people, social workers, uh, hospital administrators who in the past had worked in the field of addictions got together over breakfast one morning saying, we've got to find a way to get another chemical dependency program going. And there was a physician there, a Dr. Malik, as for Malik is his name, a psychiatrist. And he just took the ball and started working on it. The next thing I know, I hear he's, he's bought this half-vacant little hospital out in St. Charles that had been a 
a psychiatric hospital for adolescents and children, uh, started remodeling it and opened up a psych hospital. And about two years after that, he asked me if I would come out and help him start a chemical dependency program, which we did. And he just took a tremendous personal risk, he and the other investors in the building. And everybody told him he'd be out of business in a year. Well, it's, we celebrated 10 years uh, recently. And the, and the place is doing very well. Indeed, it's been expanded and enlarged and cleaned up and new, new wings built. It's uh, quite a beautiful facility at this point in time. So I give the credit to those, those individuals, especially Dr. Malik, uh, uh-huh. for having guts to, to take it on. And what we do there when we get a dual diagnosis is, I think, pretty special. Uh, as I am a psychiatrist, and as the, the chemical dependency unit is contained within the building of a major psychiatric hospital, 110 beds, Mm-hmm. psychiatric beds, uh, we could admit almost any kind of a dual diagnosis patient uh, if, they're, if they were, quote, psychotic, hallucinating, delusional, dangerous, they're going to go over to the psych side and be stabilized. Mm-hmm. But once they're stable, or if, let's say, the dual diagnosis is something like post-traumatic stress disorder, which we are seeing plenty of in some of our troops coming back from overseas, right. uh, they can come directly into my program. Because I've been a believer for years. I think one of the things we did wrong for a long time is we were saying, well, you've got to treat one and then the other. You've got to yep. treat the alcoholism and then the depression, or the depression and then the alcoholism, and would fight over which was going to be fought first, taught, treated first. Now, treat them at the same time, and that's what we really try to do. Concurrent therapy for whatever the diagnoses are. And, and it never made sense to me why you wouldn't do that. If, if I was admitted to the hospital with a heart attack and I happen to have pneumonia, they're not going to fight over which they're going to treat first. They're going to treat both at the same time. And that's what we try to do very much on my unit when we have a dual diagnosis case. And that's a pretty common situation. Mm-hmm. And your experience, and I've read some things that you've written and talked about your experience, and we'll, probably the next segment we'll get a little more into the protocol, but... Uh, it's not uncommon for a person to come in uh, dual diagnosed, and it really takes a while to figure out what's going on, uh, what is symptomatic of what, and you, you just obviously nobody conceives that you do that in 30 days anymore, right? That's sort of out the window. That's definitely out the window. We're lucky if we get a couple of weeks. And so at center point, uh, if someone... Uh, is in tr- on the addiction side for a while, and then you're starting to get a clearer picture of uh, the psychotic piece, you can move them back over to the other side, right? But they're still in the same facility, basically. Same building, and, and they could move back to my unit, to the CD unit, as soon as they're psychiatrically stable enough. Uh, now, we do an awful lot of psych treatment on the unit. The other thing I would emphasize, and having been a big advocate for getting into dual diagnosis, is it's pretty easy when you're an addict to be misdiagnosed as a dual diagnosis. Uh, for instance, many cocaine addicts have been diagnosed bipolar because of the up and down nature of cocaine addiction. When they're high on cocaine, they look manic. When they're crashing from cocaine, they get depressed. Well, that could easily be called bipolar disorder. Uh, so it's a two-way street. You, I think you really need a program that's willing to say, we're going to investigate document and treat both situations simultaneously because that's the only way we're going to find out what is real and what isn't real. Mm-hmm. And it takes time, doesn't it? It takes time. And, you know, again, we may not be clear as to what's going on with you 
while we have you in a residential setting, but we do offer follow-up outpatient. As a matter of fact, I'm calling you right now from one of our outpatient clinics mm-hmm. uh, where I've been seeing patients who've recently been in the hospital and are now an outpatient. Do you apply uh, part of the evidence-based practices for integrated dual diagnosis treatment is using stages of change? So is that a part of your process? You find out where they're at with each of these. Uh, it's fair to call them diseases. Yes. Where they're at in pre-contemplation or contemplation. Oh, as far as recovery from, from their disease, yes, you do assess that. Uh, most of the people that I see are pretty well in the contemplation phase because they're, the treatment program is voluntary, so they've uh-huh. chosen to come in for, for care. Okay. And so they're kind of beyond the pre-contemplation. They've pretty well accepted they have a problem. Now, where we get into some uh, interesting conversations with patients is when I had a patient tell me this morning, if I could only figure out why I drink, then I know I could be cured. Yeah. Those are two false concepts. You may yeah. never find out why, and you will never be cured. Yeah. Well, that's a good starting place. <laughs> it is. To, not, to know nothing, right? <laughs> yes. Um, how many beds are at your hospital, and, and how are they divided up between each, uh, each side? I'm not going to be real accurate on this, but we have about okay. 110 beds. At least 32 of them are chemical dependency beds, um, the unit that I'm in, involved with, and the rest are psychiatric split up between child, adolescent, senior citizens, and adults. Okay. And both you and Dr. Malik uh, are on the staff and work there, right? Oh, yeah. And we have a number of other psychiatrists on staff, too. Okay. And if folks want to go to the website, it's www.centerpointhospital.com. Do you have uh, sort of an aftercare outpatient component? Um, How long do people stay at your facilities? And I know it's different with each patient. It's different with each issue. I I speak better to the chemical dependency issue. Most people who are in the hospital for chemical dependency will be there uh, perhaps a few days, three or four days for detox stabilization if they go in on the psych unit and come to my unit for about two weeks. Then they go to an intensive outpatient program, and we have multiple sites for that around the community. And even a little bit away from St. Louis, as far away as Columbia, Missouri, we have outpatient programming. And that lasts anywhere from two to two weeks to two months. Uh-huh. Uh, and then there's an aftercare program they can attend uh, at the hospital and at one of our outpatient sites as long as they want to. And I've had patients do that for up to two years. So you... Uh You've been working at the hospital for about 10 years, 9 years? Did you start nine right? 9 years, yeah. Okay. And we're going to kind of just touch on what we're going to talk about in the next uh, segment about the dual diagnosis protocol. A lot of this uh, comes from your experience uh, in the addiction field and being a psychiatrist and just the fact that you've been around this uh, for a really long time. Again, what compelled you to put this information together and try to go out and, and talk to people about it? And I think I can sum it up with it. it. was the frustration of seeing too many of my chemically dependent alcoholic patients dying despite what I thought was good treatment by me. Really? It wasn't good treatment. Uh-huh. And what did you miss? I missed that it was a disease. I kept thinking of it as a symptom, so I'm 
spend all my time talking to you and working with you for your depression, your anxiety, your post-traumatic stress disorder, whatever it was, your schizophrenia, and never really address the addiction. Mm-hmm. So the addiction killed them. Yeah. So you're compelled to say, and uh, we can go into more depth about this, that you need to, you believe, focus on the disease, the addiction, the alcoholism disease first before they can go anywhere? It has to be the first thing you're treating along with the other thing, okay? It has to be concurrent, not it shouldn't be one or the other. It should be both, yeah. if there is a dual diagnosis there. Correct. Right. Not parallel or sequential. Or Then how right. well does this concept go over with the managed care uh, folks, this thing of concurrent? Because uh, they don't pay for that, do they? Actually, sometimes they don't pay any more for it, that's for sure. But sometimes it helps get a little more time authorized to treat the patient if you can document there's a co-occurring illness of a serious nature, such as major depression with suicidal thoughts. Um, That helps perhaps get them in the hospital for a little longer. But the reimbursement doesn't change any now. Yeah, right. We're going to be back in our next segment. We've been talking to Dr. David Ohms, and again, you can go to the centerpointhospital.com website. Uh, he gave you the phone number to reach him uh, there at the hospital. We'll give that again when we come back. We'll be back in another minute with uh, Dr. David Holmes. You're listening to Voice America Health & Wellness. Westbridge Community Services. Westbridge is a nonprofit organization dedicated to supporting the recovery of families and individuals who experience co-occurring mental illness and substance use disorders. Westbridge provides integrated dual diagnosis treatment for adult men and women using evidence-based practices. Visit our site today at westbridge.org and discover that doing what works in helping individuals and families gain recovery from dual disorders is important to the staff at Westbridge Community Services. Westbridge utilizes current evidence-based practices, consensus practices, and old-fashioned common sense to provide treatment to individuals and families that experience co-occurring mental illness and substance use disorders. That's westbridge.org, family-centered recovery for co-occurring mental illness and substance abuse disorders. You read about it in health news every day. Cancer rates are going up. Obesity in the U.S. is on the rise. Heart disease and diabetes are top killers every year. We can follow the advice of our doctor, but cravings persist. Weight goes up and energy is still down. It doesn't have to be like this. Tune in for Body Balance Talk with your host, Jeannie Schmidt, along with Lucy and Madeline. You'll learn how you can work with your body to feel better and look better, too. Body Balance Talk airs live every Friday at 2 p.m. Eastern Time, 11 a.m. Pacific Time on Voice America Health and Wellness. Find out what's happening on the Voice America Talk Radio Network by keeping up with us on Twitter. You can find us at Voice America TRN. Your life, your health, your network. You're listening to Voice America Health and Wellness. 
You're listening to One Hour at a Time with host Mary Woods. If you have a question for Mary or her guest, call now. The listener lines are open. The toll-free number is 1-866-472-5792. That number again is 1-866-472-5792. Now, let's get back to Mary and One Hour at a Time. Welcome back, everybody. This is John McAndrew, your co-host today. We've been talking to Dr. David Ohms, Centerpoint Hospital in St. Charles County, Missouri. The doctor's been in the addiction disease field for over 40 years. He's seen a lot of things change. And we've been talking about uh, his early on experience in his psychiatric residency, watching people with uh, co-occurring or dual diagnosis um, die because they did not treat the alcoholism as a disease. Uh, and in, in his work with Dr. Malik at Centerpoint, they treat, it's, you know, integrated, treated the, they treat the diseases in an integrated manner. I want to read something off of SAMHSA's, you know, the federal government's, website, which is a nice little paragraph, doctor, about integrating mental health and substance abuse treatment. It says, integrated treatment produces better outcomes for individuals with co-occurring mental and substance use disorders. Without integrated treatment, one or both disorders may not be addressed properly. Mental health and substance abuse authorities across the country are taking steps to integrate systems and services and promote integrated treatment. It's a pretty uh, obvious and plain to see statement. This has been around, I think it's been on their website for over four years. What is your opinion on the outcomes personally on treating, and you've already touched on it, on treating dual diagnosis in an integrated manner versus the old way, which just treated one or the other? There's no question the results of SAMHSA said in that, in that you just read. You get yeah. much better results if you do integrated treatment. Mm-hmm. You know, it's it's hard enough to stop drinking if you're depressed, and it's very hard to get out of depression if you're drinking. Yeah, so alcohol is a depressant, so you got to go after both. And so, the the basic principles of integrated treatment are, of course, you treat both diseases in the same facility, right? And, and hopefully with the same staff. And the same staff. And they're all the doctors and the addiction specialists are on the staff. And uh, what about family? How do you address the importance of the evidence-based practices show, again, that outcomes with these type of uh, patients are so much better when the family is involved? How do you address that uh, at center point? What are your experiences around that? Well, we have a weekly family education program. It's two nights a week for for the families to come to, which, of course, you can't make them, but they're highly encouraged to do so. And then there are always one-on-one sessions with the primary therapist of the patient and the family. Uh And then we strongly encourage family members to go to their 12-step meetings, such as Al-Anon, Alateen meetings. Uh, But we do offer an ongoing family program that's integrated with the patient's treatment. Mm-hmm. Why do you think that works? Why do you think that uh, is a component of, of better outcomes? What do you think is going on there? Well, one of them, I, I'll give you an example from this morning. I, I was talking with one of my patients who's a little 24-year-old 
heroin addict, uh, mother of a single child who lives at home with her parents right now. And her parents visited her yesterday. This patient's been there about 10 days, so she'll be leaving soon. And she was planning on returning to her mom and dad's until she could get a job and get out on her own with her daughter. At any rate, when the parents visited over the weekend, uh, the entire time they were there was an attack time. They were telling her what a worthless, useless person she was. We don't trust you. You're no good. We wish you wouldn't come home, da 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 well, that doesn't exactly help recovery. Uh, so we're trying to get them, and so far they have refused to come into the family program. Yeah. And sometimes families, I, I know, are are just so tired of being in the acute mode and uh, being, you know, emergencies, and uh, they're just so, so tired that they sort of want to separate themselves, and they feel that that's healthy for them to do. But when you break up the family like that, and I, I guess through education really is the only way to kind of slowly uh, bring them all through the process, isn't it? And, and if we can get them to go to their own recovery program, their own, and I'm a huge believer in Al-Anon there, uh, that really, really helps also. And I understand where they're coming from. My gosh, addicts are pretty good at manipulating and lying, and uh, most of these families have been manipulated and lied to an awful lot mm-hmm. before the patient gets into treatment. Yeah. And it's it's hard, isn't it, to overcome, to get people and especially families to see these as uh, this is a brain disease or this is a disease, you know, and separate their son and their daughter from the disease. It's really difficult to do, and I I think people that even work in the field, when it when it's your family, God, it gets tough. Um, yeah, it really is tough, especially because again, uh, most. Most addicts are very bright and very manipulative, and uh, they've usually conned and manipulated their families uh, to the nth degree before they get help. Mm-hmm. So that experience, and uh, so we know that the family is, is integral in, this, in the evidence-based practices and treating them in the same place and using you know cognitive behavioral therapy and 12-step I'm going to go to your article now, and I think this relates to all that, is how do you accomplish cognitive behavioral therapy while they're trying to get the medicines regulated? And I'm assuming at Centerpoint, do some of your patients uh, come from acute facilities? Are you able to treat them there if they're considered acute? yeah, I'm not sure what you mean by acute. We certainly get transfers from other hospitals after they've been stabilized. Uh, for mm-hmm. Somebody might have uh, been involved in a major automobile accident while intoxicated or uh, maybe have gone through DTs when they came off of alcohol, mm-hmm. had seizures when they're coming off of uh, downers like benzodiazepine, tranquilizers. So we do see a lot of people with medical complications. The only thing we're not really equipped to take care of is if if you if the person has got so much wrong medically that their brain isn't functioning well, okay. uh, you know you'll have some people who have irreversible permanent brain damage comparable to Alzheimer's disease from their drug use. We can't do much with them. Okay. We have other people whose brains are really impaired because their livers are not functioning right and their ammonia levels in their bloodstream are so high that it's impairing their memory. Once that gets stabilized, we'll go for it. We can continue the medical treatment while they're there and try to get them into therapy. Mm-hmm. So the, this paper that you wrote, I want to get make sure we don't forget this. Um, 
because it was really sort of the theme of the show, and uh, I think it's important. All that we've been talking about leads up to the dual diagnosis treatment protocols, which illness should be treated first. Again, go through why, you know, your experiences and why you thought it was important. This was published uh, six or seven years ago uh, for NAMI, and it was in the St. Louis newsletter for NAMI. And I think it's really an important article. And uh, tell us what kind of motivated you and, and, and what the gist of this whole thing is. I have to go back to my, my first major failure as a resident, Tom. Yeah. What motivated me was seeing people not getting well from their addictions because all of the treatment was being focused on their other psychiatric illnesses. And it was, it was assumed that if we could get their other psych illness stabilized, the addiction would come under control. Right. I've even had patients where psychiatrists and their doctors have said, once we get your depression treated, you'll be able to drink normally, which is impossible if you're an alcoholic. It's almost like giving the patient permission to drink when you say that kind of thing. But you have to deal with both issues at the same time hopefully with the same staff member so you don't bounce the patient back and forth. We used to use a phrase. For a long time, I was on the Missouri Mental Health Commission, and we always talked about our our state mental health system was divided into silos. We had one silo that treated mental illness. We had another silo that treated addictions and another silo that treated mental uh, deficiency issues, developmental defects. That doesn't work. You've got to treat. You've got this patient in front of you, what's wrong with them? Okay, I'm going to just give a, a, a typical example. I've got myself a 48-year-old female alcoholic, also addicted and abusing pain pills and maybe addicted and abusing tranquilizers like Xanax, okay? Yep. And that all started when she was raped, following a rape that she never told anybody about because she was embarrassed about the rape. It occurred when she was at a bar drunk. Whatever, okay? How am I going to treat her? Am I going to say, okay, I'm not going to deal with your post-traumatic stuff. I'm not going to deal with your nightmares. I'm not going to deal with your flashbacks. I'm just going to focus on your pills and your, and your alcohol. Yeah. Are you going to say, I'm going to treat your post-traumatic stress disorder symptoms, that problem, and then once that's under control, you'll be able to drink normally? No, you need to do with both at the same time. Mm-hmm. And history and, and, and shows that can be done if you have if you have the right training and the right staff. Yeah, and it does take the training and the staff. And the history is just overwhelming. And I think a lot of our listeners, uh, we have professional folks and we have families. A lot of people listen to our show, and the families who have had sons and daughters. I mean, they can articulate this as well as anybody. That I sent my son to the psych ward. He did good. He got on his medications. He came home, and then he started drinking. And well, when you start drinking, the meds either don't work or they quit taking the meds. And so right. then they send them to treatment. So now they've got they've paid two places, right? And the treatment works, and he sobers up, and now there he is, uh, he or she, no drugs or alcohol, and the mental illness component is haunting and overwhelming, and then they just bounce back and forth. And so many families in this country have spent all their resources and 
some of them, all their families' resources to try to treat these two illnesses. And I, I, there's, I, it's funny that there's even an argument about it, isn't, isn't there? I mean, it's just so It really well. is, because the, the evidence is overwhelming. If you do concurrent therapy, you get good results, or you can get yeah. much better results than if you try to treat one and then the other, or never even bother to treat one. Mm-hmm. This whole concept of if I can find out why I'm using and deal with that and get that taken care of, I'll be okay, is really nothing other than a good rationalization to continue to use. As I tell patients every day, you never run out of good reasons to take a drink. I mean, in my, here in St. Louis, the Cardinals win, you can drink. Cardinals lose, you can drink, right? Yeah. Go either way. So I'm not so sure I want to know why you drink. What I want to know is what you're going to do not to drink. We've been talking to Dr. David Holmes. When we come back, I'm gonna, we're going to follow up this discussion and kind of circle back to what you initially, your experience in the early days and how now you recommend that these folks go to 12-step treatment. I think if we circle back, we've had a lot of 12-step people on here that, that pretty much say what you just said. We need you know, figure out what's going on and get professional help with that. Very um, good. And we come back, we might ask you a couple other questions, and, and I kind of want to know uh, some of your experiences with being on the advisory board for Anheuser-Busch. That might be interesting. We'll be right back. Love, love to do that. Opinions, options, answers. You're listening to Voice America Health & Wellness. Westbridge Community Services. Westbridge is a nonprofit organization dedicated to supporting the recovery of families and individuals who experience co-occurring mental illness and substance use disorders. Westbridge provides integrated dual diagnosis treatment for adult men and women using evidence-based practices. Visit our site today at westbridge.org and discover that doing what works in helping individuals and families gain recovery from dual disorders is important to the staff at Westbridge Community Services. Westbridge utilizes current evidence-based practices, consensus practices, and old-fashioned common sense to provide treatment to individuals and families that experience co-occurring mental illness and substance use disorders. That's westbridge.org, family-centered recovery for co-occurring mental illness and substance abuse disorders. Have you ever taken a minute to think about how your joints work from the outside? Tendons and ligaments are stiff enough to hold our bones together, but flexible enough to allow them to articulate and move. Our joints are not simple hinges, but highly adaptable structures that allow an amazing range of motion. They also allow an amazing adaptability to injury. Find out more by tuning in to Rethinking Orthopedics with Mary J. Rogel, Wednesdays at 7 p.m. Eastern, 4 Pacific, on Voice America Health & Wellness. It's time to take a new look at the body. Become our friend on Facebook. Post your thoughts about our shows and network on our timeline. Visit Facebook.com forward slash Voice America. Helping you make informed decisions for your life. This is Voice America Health and Wellness. You're listening to One Hour at a Time with host Mary Woods. If you have a question for Mary or her guests, call now. The listener lines are open. The toll-free number is 1-866-472-5792. That number again is 1-866-472-5792. Now, let's get back to Mary and One Hour at a Time. 
Welcome back, everybody. We've been talking to Dr. David Ohms, and uh, the hour has gone pretty quickly. We have one more little short segment. Again, if you want to go to the website at Centerpoint Hospital, it's centerpointhospital.com, and it's spelled C-E-N-T-E-R-P-O-I-N-T-E, hospital.com. And you can also reach Dr. Ohm there if you would like for him to... um, if you have any questions for him, would like for him to speak. Uh, Dr. Holmes, we were talking a little bit. If we circle back to the, uh, you talked about early in, uh, early in your psychiatric career, uh, one, of, one of the people that you sort of trusted gave you some advice about all your medical textbooks. What was that? I went to work at the detox program, and the, the doctor there, whose name again was Joe Kendis, says, tell me everything you think you know about alcoholism. And I launched into a very Freudian concept of alcoholism I won't waste your time with. And he told me, <laughs> all right, take your books, throw them away, and he handed me what's called the Big Book of Alcoholics Anonymous. And he told me, I want you to read this and come back, and we'll discuss it. And that was an eye-opener for me when I started reading that. I didn't believe it at first. I went ahead and treated Tom like I I. I Totally different than what the big book would have, would have provided me, but Tom died. So then I went back to that same doctor in the big book, and he had me go to AA meetings. Uh, not that I had an addiction because he wanted me to learn about AA. I started going to what they call open meetings and finally got invited to a few closed meetings, and boy, did it open up my eyes. Uh-huh. And they talk about the disease concept, don't they, all That's the time? The They've always thought it was a disease, yeah. and they were right. And I think they, they reached that conclusion very simply, unfortunately, by doing some pretty heavy field trials on their own. <laughs> yeah, there was uh, unfunded research, probably, uh, and the mental health illness component is always talked about. We have folks on here. I, um, I have a question about, this is sort of the elephant in the room, we, we're treating dual diagnosis now, both in the same place, and so now medication meets the 12-step program. Uh, and you're trying to do the best, and they need both. Uh, I don't think either one of them says you're not supposed to do that, from what I know. But how do you how do you use medication now? There's a new term called medically assisted treatment. And uh, what does that mean? And uh, what do you know about that? What are your opinions? And uh, the whole use of medication. Oh boy, I guess very broad. There are actually only yeah. four medications approved by the Food and Drug Administration for the treatment of addictions. Uh, the oldest is a drug called Anabuse, where if you drink on it, you get violently ill and can die. Mm-hmm. So that's not widely used because that's one heck of a side effect. Uh, the other uh, one is a drug called Campril, which is for alcoholism only and seems to be somewhat helpful. Not addictive. It's very safe to take. has very few, if any, side effects other than diarrhea. But... It's very difficult to take. It's six tablets a day, and it's fairly expensive. Then the other two, actually it's the same drug called now Trexone, available as a pill or as a shot, and that's being used for alcohol and drug addiction. I find the shot of now Trexone, called Vivitrol, to be a very helpful treatment for opiate addiction. It works by blocking opiate receptors. So if I've had the Vivitrol shot, and I go out and I do pain pills or I do heroin, I just wasted my money. I get no, nothing out of it, no feeling from it at all, no euphoria, no high. So I do like that drug very, very much for opiate addiction. In, in my own personal opinion now, 
the, the studies of it in alcoholism don't show it to be quite as effective at all. Matter of fact, there's some evidence that it only works in alcoholics who have a, a particular genetic defect, and we don't really test for that genetic defect. So mm-hmm. it has limited usefulness there. My main concern, is, and I can sum it up with a line from the doctor who treated Betty Ford many years ago. He said, quote, most doctors treat alcoholism as a benzodiazepine deficiency syndrome, as a tranquilizer syndrome, and that's true. One of the challenges that I have every day is to treat the psychiatric side of the patient, the psychiatric illnesses, like, right. let's say, anxiety and panic attacks, using non-addictive medications. I can't use an addictive medication in my patients. Most doctors do not appreciate that. And I'll have patients, I warn them all the time about it, and they'll go to their family doctor, they'll go to their OBGYN, and they'll be given a medicine they shouldn't take, which leads to a relapse. Mm-hmm. Very frustrating. And then over on the other side of the hospital, where you work, Dr. Malik is working on the psych piece, and you're working together, I'm assuming, on what kind of medications are going to work over on that side that are not going to interfere with the addiction medications. So it really takes, I think, again, it's another, it's evidence of how this integrated approach, because you talked about the addict and alcoholic, how manipulative they can be. And part of that historically has been going to the psych doctor who lives on one end of town and then the addiction doctor and therapist on the other side of town, and they can really load up on a lot of stuff uh, in they're our very culture. Good uh, yeah, and they're good at it. The, the use of Suboxone, which is sort of another mm-hmm. where there's a medically-assisted treatment, what are your thoughts on Suboxone? Uh, Suboxone is approved. I skipped that. It is approved by the FDA for the treatment of opiate dependency. Mm -hmm. Uh, It can be used two ways. One of them is as a detox medicine to make it a little easier for the patient to withdraw from their opiates, be they prescription painkillers or heroin, and it's extremely effective there, and I I really, really like it for for that. Uh, The other way you can use it is what's called a maintenance. You keep them on it uh, for a prolonged period of time. Uh, there's a couple of problems doing that. Number one, it is addictive itself. It contains a, an opiate medicine, a synthetic opiate that is addictive. Uh, that opiate, that particular one is called buprenorphine. It loves the pain opiate receptors in the brain, and it goes in there and blocks them from any other opiate, so that's good. The bad part is when you come off Suboxone, you're going to go through a withdrawal from the buprenorphine. That's not hard to handle medically. Part that I'm having trouble with, and I still use quite a bit of Suboxone, is you could play games with it. The addict can play games with it. Mm-hmm. They, can, they can stop it for a day or two, go out and use, get high, keep using until they can't afford it or can't get a hold of it anymore. Then they start to go into withdrawal, then they can go back on their Suboxone. Mm-hmm. So they can go on and off of it. And I have problems with that in, in a number of patients. And when I see that happening with a patient, and I insist they go on the shot, the Bivitrol shot, or not. Okay. And are there not lozenges now? Or are there other approaches to the uh, administering that drug besides shots, or is that just Oh, no, it? Suboxone is, is, oh, you're talking about the naltrexone or the Suboxone? Suboxone. Suboxone is only used under the tongue. Okay. That's the only way to get Suboxone. Now, there's research of putting the buprenorphine side of Suboxone. There's two drugs in Suboxone to prevent abuse. If you take a Suboxone and you swallow it 
or you inject it, you will go into horrible withdrawal because the other drug that's in there is naltrexone, which will kick all opiates out of the human body, including the buprenorphine. I don't want to get uh-huh. too medical here. Uh, there that's is right. research that we may soon have the buprenorphine component, the opiate that blocks the receptor in a form where it will be actually implanted underneath your skin mm-hmm. and will keep you blocked for up to six months. Mm-hmm. But that's in development. That's not available now. So, I mean, essentially oversight from the distribution of it and an accountability as far as the patient is concerned is, is, is really important with the use of that. But there's positive as, positives and negatives. And um, I for appreciate some of my your... patients, it's been a godsend. Yeah. Okay. But for others, it's just enabled their addiction. Yeah. That's kind of the way life is, isn't it? It can be that way, yeah. Again, that takes a doctor who knows what he's doing and is monitoring the patient carefully. Absolutely. We have been talking with Dr. David Holmes, and uh, I had a whole lot of other questions for you. Our hour has come and gone. Maybe we can do this again. I'd love again, to. go go to centerpointhospital.com. And, uh, and what is the phone number to reach you again, Dr. Holmes? Well, the number I gave you earlier is one that goes to our assessment unit. Mm-hmm. Uh, where they will talk to you about whether you need help or not, if you're looking for help. The, uh, the main number for the hospital uh, is 636-441-7300, Very good. 636-441-7300. Right. We at one hour at a time want to thank you very much for your time, and uh, please stay tuned to the show next week. Bye, everybody. Appreciate you joining us today for one hour at a time. Successful recovery from a substance abuse problem or mental illness depends on education and support of loved ones. Thank you for being that support system. Be sure to tune in next week for another hour of education and compassion. One hour at a time. We'll see you next week.